If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. In 1940, Colonel Scotland turns up at this MI5 interrogation centre to to interrogate a prisoner. Um, It was Latchmere House near Richmond. And he's, in one of the MI5 diaries, it says that he was wielding a syringe of drugs. And I thought, well, is this just play acting? Is it just got a bit of water in a syringe, you know? Or is this for real? That was Helen Fry talking about the London Cage, Britain's secret Second World War interrogation centre. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm David Musgrove, BBC History magazine's content director. Today we're going to hear from historian and author Helen Fry, whose latest book throws light on the murky history of a secret Second World War interrogation centre operating in the heart of London. Known as The Cage, it housed some of the toughest Nazi war criminals. Speaking to Helen was our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn. So we're in Bedford Square in London and I'm joined by Helen Fry, um, who's a historian and a biographer who's written over 25 books, mainly about the Second World War and particularly about intelligence history. Um, Helen, so your latest book, The London Cage, brings to light some controversial revelations about um, activities in a World War II interrogation centre right in the heart of London. Can you explain to us um, what exactly the London Cage was and what happened there? So the London Cage was actually formed in autumn of 1940 because the intelligence services realised they needed somewhere where all their other sites had failed. They needed a site that was a little bit tougher. And we didn't actually have a formalised... Um, policy of interrogation so it was still very new and the commanding officer Colonel Scotland was an expert on Germany and on German prisoners of war in particular because he'd interrogated prisoners in the First World War and so he although he was approaching nearly his 70s he was brought almost out of retirement really to run this very secret interrogation centre. So you open the book with the story of um, Colonel Scotland as you said, the man in charge of the cage, trying to publish his memoir about his time there, but again and again coming up against various different obstacles. Why do you think that everybody was so keen to suppress his memoir about his time at the London Cage? From the now declassified files, we can tell that the sensitivities were around... Well, revelations about the kind of prisoners that were held there, the interrogation techniques. And and so what happened was that his manuscript was impounded by a special branch and they kind of delivered it to MI5 and the War Office. And now if we compare that to his published memoirs, which came out in 1957, I mean, they're very bland, of course, but the unpublished manuscript, which is about 350 pages, brings 
the life of the cage, you really get a sense of the challenges. Because for all the controversy about what went on behind those closed doors, actually, the interrogators and Colonel Scotland had a huge challenge in trying to get uh, these diehard Nazis to give up their intelligence secrets. So what are some of the new revelations that you've come across in more recently declassified material? Well, I highlight um, some of the mistreatment that has appeared in smaller form, you know, articles and paragraphs previously in various books. But for me, the new element in this book is not just to crystallise that, but to pull out... So before the book came out, we already knew that there were these rumours of mistreatment and that kind of stuff, and exactly how bad was the so-called torture, and it's obviously about definitions of torture. But for me, uh, one thing I really wanted to do with the book was to capture the life inside the cage. And one of the things that the book reveals for the first time is the use of truth drugs uh, on the on the prisoners of war. And we think about that in the Cold War and, of course, all the films that have come out since, The Born Identity, perhaps we take it for granted that truth drugs was used in the Cold War, but now in the Second World War. So I do reveal that for the very first time and I also reveal the names of two of the so-called suicides in the cage. Can you give us some examples of who ended up in the cage? For the first three years that the the London cage was operating, so until 1943, um, the files have not been declassified. So we have to rely on Colonel Scotland's unpublished memoirs. And from those, which seem to be fairly accurate, the latest side of the story seems fairly accurate when you compare them. Um, But the prisoners seem to be those who had some, were known to have intelligence some of the secrets about army, naval warfare, whatever, and they couldn't be cracked, if you like, under normal interrogation techniques. And then at the end of the war, the London cage was transformed into a really seriously important war crimes investigation unit. So what were Scotland and his interrogators trying to achieve? Were they aiming for intelligence? Were they aiming to get confessions for convictions for war crimes? What was their plan? It was exactly that, actually, twofold. So during the wartime itself, it was intelligence. And we know from the declassified files and memos that his role was to help MI5 and MI6, it actually says this in the reports, uh, to gain intelligence from prisoners that, that you know hadn't given it elsewhere. At the end of the war... Um, Colonel Scotland and his team were very much tracking down a huge task, tracking down Nazi war criminals, a lot of admin paperwork. But then once they had them, they tracked them down, false identities in hiding, bring them back to London, and then they would interrogate them uh, and ask them also to write a confession. And some of them actually did it quite willingly because they wanted to write their side of the story and make themselves look favourable. But there were others that didn't. And, of course, that's where... Colonel Scotland might have crossed the line to get their confession. You mentioned about um, aiming to get intelligence out of these prisoners during the war. What what kind of intelligence? And can we see any examples where intelligence got from the linen cage then um, impacted the course of the war? Well, we can see from the interrogation reports which have 
been declassified after 1943. We're not sure why they haven't come out before that, but the, they just won't release those. But we know the kind of intelligence, particularly from prisoners about defences along the French coast, uh, deep bunkers, the German um, concrete bunkers, and how they were constructed, had they used reinforced iron for example, because we needed to know how to be able to bomb them ultimately and where they were and how far apart. Underground factories, um, concentration camps. There was an awful lot of stuff coming out now about the concentration camps and the prisoners gave that kind of information and that was recorded as well. So important stuff. And, and as a result of that, uh, Bomber Command and you know, various RAF units were able to target... German defences. As you mentioned earlier, the heart of the controversy here is about the methods that these interrogators used. Could you outline some of these methods for us and um, how they lined up with the policies of the Geneva Convention? So it's clear from the declassified files that they always, the military always stressed the importance in the limited guidelines that were given that the personnel had to keep to the Geneva Convention. Uh, but the kind of methods that we used at the London Cage were a mix of a soft and a hard approach. So they would try a soft approach, a nice, kind, friendly interrogator. If that didn't work, then a tougher interrogator would come in. And they, it was a lot of play acting, actually. The best interrogators were had had a pre-war career in acting or journalism, storytellers, teachers, those that could pull off a story. Um, and in terms of the hard stuff, well, you would have, for example, one of the U-boat crew talk about uh, the, a pistol being spun on the table. And every time he refused to reply, it would turn once. And the interrogator, we don't know who it was, said, when this points at you, I shoot. Well, of course, they don't know if that's a reality or not, because the atmosphere and the, the general shouting and bawling of the interrogators at the prisoners generally in the cage meant, well, how do you know? They're not going to do that. And the other story was that they were shown a, a trench in the garden that they would be shot. So, of course, the prisoners didn't know whether that would be real. There's also stories about um, uh, some of the interrogators saying, you know, I know where your wife and daughter are and I'm very in touch with the Soviet invading force there. Do we get a sense that was purely bluff? I haven't found any evidence to think that it was anything other than bluff. But, of course, the prisoners don't know that. The other ruse they used to do was, in front of the prisoner, they'd have his, his, it looked like his papers in front of... And the uh, interrogator would write NR just on his papers, nach Russland, the, uh, to Russia. But, of course, the prisoner thought it meant he was about to be sent to the Russians, and they feared the Russians, of course, most of all. But it actually meant not required. But there was no way of knowing. But it's a lot of the interrogation relied on clever psychology. So another example, which, again, I highlight, is a, the pretty eerie basement area, and they had constructed so-called cell 14 and so a prisoner was threatened with cell 14 and this really existed and nobody ever actually went in there or spent any time in there but it was constructed with um, all sorts of weird looking objects and the smell of dead rats and rotting flesh and so it was pretty chilling but it was never used but the prisoners didn't know that so that maybe this is a good point to mention um 
where the London Cage was and speak a little bit about um, its construction. Yeah, it was in really the unlikeliest of locations, actually in Kensington Palace Gardens. And the properties today there are, well, I don't know how much they're worth, but they're worth an awful lot of noughts, um, millions. And who would suspect in those beautiful stately homes along that street that they would be used for interrogation centre? And Colonel Scotland, or the War Office, requisitioned three of them adjoining each other, number six to seven, eight and eight A. And that was basically housed the whole of the London cage. And at any one time, they could have about 60 prisoners in there. And at one point, just after D-Day, it wasn't enough. So they requisitioned some of the land, the paddock behind Kensington Palace. Um, Again, nobody really knew what was going on there. As far as they're concerned, it just looked like a few prisoners in, in little bell tents. But the interrogations actually happened in the house uh, houses themselves. Um, and, of course, there's just no way of telling. Anyone walked past the street at that point would have, wouldn't have a clue of what was going on. And highly top secret, of course. And are the houses still there today? Are they privately owned now? Yes, they are. In fact, six to seven is Russian embassy... And number 888A, at one point in the 60s, it was knocked down and and rebuilt into really nice flats. You mentioned earlier about the psychological ruses that some of the interrogators used, Um, but they did also kind of stray into the physical territory, would it be fair to say? Yes, that's true. The question is how far, and it's still a little bit murky. We know for sure things like sleep deprivation, if you have one or two nights without sleep, it really does you in, (laughs) and you're kind of disorientated and can't. So the sleep deprivation uh, coupled with really lengthy interrogations, and I was quite shocked actually to see in some of the files a schedule of how... For example, one prisoner was interrogated for, say, three and a half hours in the middle of the night, half an hour back at his room slash cell, hauled out again, another hour and a half, again, back for three quarters of an hour or so, and again, hauled out five, six, seven hours of interrogation. So really gruelling stuff, designed to physically break them down in many ways. But of course, whether there was any physical punching and that kind of thing, it's, it's a bit unclear, an electric shock treatment, it's a bit hazy... Something you also discuss is um, the use of chores, uh, which I found really interesting because um, I wouldn't have thought there was anything you know wrong with doing chores, but using prisoners for chores is against was against the Geneva Convention. Yeah, I mean, I found that extraordinary when there's all this toing and froing, and it really hinged on the definition of a transit camp or a prisoner of war camp. So was the London Cage? a transit camp, i.e. prisoners were there for a day or two, maybe they'd been interrogated and then moved on. Well, actually, clearly it wasn't. I mean, prisoners were often in transit, but they could have been there for two or three weeks. Or was it a prisoner of war camp? And I think it was to say it was a prisoner of war camp. There were accusations by one of the Nazi war criminals in 1945-46 that actually what the prisoners were being asked to do is uh, cleaning stairs with a toothbrush or cleaning the toilet, scraping it with a razor blade. But, I mean, who knows? And do we um, have any sense how this compared to other countries' um, interrogation processes at the time within the Allied force and actually the Axis forces as well? You mentioned how the British military were quite firm on their stance about breaking the Geneva Convention, but there, were there other strands of the British military that perhaps were kind of getting into this murky territory as well. 
Yeah, and of course it is important to say that still today the British military are absolutely clear that, you know, you don't cross the Geneva Convention. But of course... Every now and again, it sort of does happen at various units and sometimes in the Cold War as well, of course. So um, two things, really. We had other units. There was a unit in Cairo uh, that was interrogating with a few kind of unclear interrogation methods. But um, in post-war Germany, Colonel Scotland's colleague, Colonel Stevens, ran an interrogation site at Bad Nendorf, and that he was court-martialed or faced court-martial at the end of the war for his treatment of, well, then political prisoners, civilians, denazification prisoners. You did mention the new revelations you've discovered about the use of truth drugs. Could you perhaps go into a bit of detail about what what that involved? You see, I found this absolutely fascinating. In 1940, Colonel Scotland turns up at this MI5 interrogation centre to to interrogate a prisoner. Um, It was Latchmere House near Richmond. And he's, in one of the MI5 diaries, it says that he was wielding a syringe of drugs and I thought well is this just play acting is it just got a bit of water in a syringe you know or is this for real and I started to delve into whether the military used drugs on prisoners and I was astounded to find some files that have been declassified so um, they linked in with naval intelligence for example in these units and naval intelligence officers in 1939 were experimenting with truth drugs on themselves. So, you know, it's a bit like the first anaesthetists that used to, you know, experiment with anaesthetic on themselves. And occasionally you'd have a, a naval officer be on the floor. Well, we've given him a bit too much. Um, and I was just hooked by this. And I thought I would try and find out more. And yeah, we did. We experimented with a combination of truth drugs, so called truth drugs, barbiturates, amphetamines, and hypnosis. You know, a good 20, 10, 20 years before the height of the Cold War use of such stuff. And I guess they must have also had a kind of psychological impact um, as much as a physical one, that if people believed they were being given truth drugs, that would affect their willingness to cooperate. Ah, well, that was the point. The prisoner did not know that he had been given a truth drug. And the reason, the way they did it was, for example, they'd say, well, look, you know, with all this in the wartime, with all the blitz on London or wherever, you could be hit or, you know, in the countryside. uh, And we don't know your blood group. So if we have to give you a blood transfusion, and of course they believed it, so we have to take a sample of your blood so we know in an emergency we can... and And, of course, in doing that... They also injected them with the truth drug. And even I discovered that some of the interrogators didn't know that the people, the men they were interrogating were under the influence of so-called truth drugs. So who were some of the most um, notorious uh, prisoners that were held in the cage? Well, by the time you get to spring 1946, I I made a list, actually, because I got this feeling of the tension that were in the cage. It was a very, very difficult time. And I realised then that we had some of the highest-ranking SS, some of them generals, in the cage all at the same time. And it also included various commandants of concentration camps. So you can just imagine the atmosphere. You had SS general, for example, Fritz Knochlein. Uh, He was responsible for the murder in cold blood 
of some of our surrendering soldiers in 1940. Uh, and six years later, Colonel Scotland's investigating that terrible war crime. And so Knochline is actually, you know, crosses the London cage and he has a pretty... He and uh, Scotland do not like each other, of, of course. So something that does feature in the book is a very unlikely friendship between Colonel Scotland and Kesselring, one of the prisoners. Could you tell us about that? Yes, Field Marshal Kesselring was a commander in Italy um, in the latter part of the war, and he'd been brought to the London Cage on charges of potentially of war crimes because there, were very, there was a massacre, a terrible massacre outside Rome uh, in 1944, and it was believed that he gave the orders. Now, Colonel Scotland always believed that Kesselring was innocent, and Kesselring had not given the orders actually, but Kesselring did stand trial, and in the cage, um, um, Scotland tries to, you know, convince him not to admit to being the overall commander because he will be done for war crimes. He said, there's no way you knew about those orders. But Kesselring was thinking about his honour as a field marshal. So they have this really heated exchange. And Colonel Scotland says, if you carry on like that, you're going to hang for crimes that you're not responsible for. And so I just think it extraordinary. And after the trial in Venice in 47, the trial at which Scotland gives personal testimony to Kesselring's, Kesselring's innocence. I mean, the intelligence services were furious with Colonel Scotland because they were supporting a war criminal, potentially. He goes and visits Kesselring in prison and they've just got this very warm respect. And because he believed he, Kesselring was never guilty of war crimes, he did everything he could to get him freed. It's extraordinary. You've also described coming across many different obstacles when researching this. Files going missing in the post, files um, going missing through flooding, is that correct? Well, it, what it is, is um, <clears throat> the journalist Ian Cobain brought out his book a few years ago, and in doing that, Cruel Britannia, and in doing that, uh, he tried to get the files released on the London cage, and it was refused. And some of them have come back, you know, um, they've been contaminated by asbestos and destroyed by flood water. I love that. Let's just put the asbestos gear on and look at them. We're all grown-ups now. But what is there to hide? What's the sensitivity? I think I haven't really understood, you know, in this day and age what the sensitivity is. It could be over the mysterious deaths in the cage. It could be as simple as that. I don't know. I just don't understand what could be in those files that is so sensitive after all this time. I think what I have found is that people are really interested in the subject of this book, and I'm not sure that I could have written it 10 years ago and it would have had the same reception. I think we are, because there was always a portrayal yeah, you know, the Allies won the war, we did a lot of good stuff, but we wanted to perhaps suppress the darker side. It doesn't look good. But I think now people are wanting to know the lights and shades and darkness of the wartime, of a deeper appreciation, not necessarily to be critical, because we face challenges today. And I think it really does challenge people, gosh, you know, if that was us back then, what would we do? You know, how far would you go? I'm not saying we should, but it, I think it really does raise relevant questions. You mentioned uh, mysterious deaths that might be in this classified material. What do we know about them? 
Well, I came across a newspaper cutting in the files of a war prisoner, you know, war criminal, hangs himself in Kensington Cage. And I was intrigued because it has the date on it, but it says because he is complicit in war crimes, we are withholding his name. And I thought it must be quite straightforward now to find out who it was. It took a heck of a lot of unravelling to find his name. And it turns out, I mean, readers can, can read the trial in the book, but he basically, the death certificate was issued in one name and he was buried in another. So it's almost impossible to trace him. And I came across just a throwaway comment by Colonel Scotland in one of the files which says, after the demise of, and I thought, gosh... That's a loaded term. So perhaps this was one of the suicides, and there were four suicides, known suicides, in the London cage. And we've been able to find two of them, but two of the names remain a mystery. So finally, you, I think you touched on it a bit earlier, but um, what would your, your verdict on the events in the London cage be? Um, were they justified? Were they a necessary evil? I think we have to look very closely at the legacy of the London cage. I think there were other operations in the wartime run by the intelligence services that surreptitiously gleaned intelligence from prisoners. I mean, there was a whole bugging operation at three stately homes, and that was very clever. And we got tons and tons. Trent Park was one of them in North London. And I think if, you know, that's the way to go, if you want to kind of crack intelligence. Um, I'm obviously very uncomfortable about the events that happened in the cage. But what I think we should do is to remember that this... This should feature in books on the Second World War, and it hasn't. And if I was to sum up its legacy, yes, it's contributed to intelligence in the wartime, but what has been missed in the public sphere is the justice that it brought uh, at the end of the war in bringing Nazi war criminals to trial, and they would never have faced trial if it hadn't been for Colonel Scotland and his team. Thank you very much for your time, Helen. Thank you. Um, and your new book, The London Cage, is out now. Yes, from bookshops and Amazon, yes. Thank you very much. That was author Helen Fry talking to our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn. Helen's book, The London Cage, The Secret History of Britain's World War II Interrogation Centre, is out now, published by Yale. That's about it for today, but please do listen in again on Thursday when we'll be talking to Nicola Tallis about Elizabeth I's love rival, Lettuce Knowles. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts.